Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. My name is Cheryl, and this is my daughter. Hi, I'm June. Today we're starting our series on the second sex abuse claim against Michael Jackson, the Arvizo allegations. The Arvizo allegations are markedly different from the previous allegations. Unlike the Chandler case, the Arvizo case led to a criminal trial. This makes the Arvizo claims easier to evaluate because of the vast legal paper trail. Whereas in the Chandler case, we only have the accuser's narrative to consider. In the Arvizo case, you have the best evidence presented on both sides. But before we begin our story about the Arvizo allegations, we'll get you caught up on what's been going on with Michael Jackson since his settlement with the Chandlers. After the Chandler settlement in January 1994, Michael Jackson immediately starts work on his next album, History, which features songs directly inspired by the Chandler allegations. The album is released in 1995, and Michael goes on his history tour in 1996 and 97. His three children are born in 1997, 1998, and 2002. Michael Jackson releases his final album, Invincible, in 2001, and he turns again to his longtime ambition of filmmaking, which was cut short by the 1993 scandal. Michael Jackson's use of painkillers continued off and on after the Chandler allegations, but notably increased after he injured his back in an onstage accident in 1999, when the platform he was standing on collapsed and fell 50 feet. I'd like to introduce a new voice to the podcast. Hello, I'm Derek Black. Derek is a voice actor who will be helping us narrate the Arvizo allegations. Unless otherwise noted, the information in these episodes on the Arvizo case comes from trial testimony and evidence, and links to this evidence can be found on our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com. In today's part one, we'll cover the timeline and backstory of the Arvizo case, the circumstances behind the sex abuse claims and Michael Jackson's arrest, and we'll take you through some of the legal battles leading up to the trial. In June of 2000, seven years after the Chandler allegations, 10-year-old Gavin Arvizo is diagnosed with cancer. He has surgery to remove a kidney and a spleen, and he undergoes chemotherapy over the next few months. Before Gavin's illness, he and his brother Star took comedy camps that were offered to local underprivileged kids at Jamie Masada's Laugh Factory Comedy Club in Hollywood. Gavin and his family made friends with a number of comedians while at these camps, including Masada, George Lopez, and Chris Tucker. Jamie Masada visits Gavin in the hospital after his surgery, and he says Gavin asks him to meet certain celebrities, including Michael Jackson. Masada says he makes the connection with Jackson, who calls Gavin soon after. According to Gavin, Jackson calls him about 20 times during his illness, between June and August 2000 sometimes at the hospital and sometimes at Gavin's grandmother's home, where he lived at the time. Gavin and his family will later say that Jackson gives him encouragement and positivity in these phone calls. After Gavin's first round of chemotherapy, the Arvizo family meets Michael Jackson in person for the first time at Neverland Ranch. Ten-year-old Gavin is joined by his older sister, Davelin, who's around 13, his younger brother, Star, who is nine, and his parents. By Gavin and his mother's own accounts, after a fun day at Neverland, Gavin and Starr asked to stay the night in Jackson's bedroom suite, rather than go back to a guest house with their parents. Frank Cassio gives his account of what happened that night in his book My Friend Michael. Frank Cassio and his family of seven befriended Jackson in the 1980s, and at the time of the Arvizos' visit to Neverland in August 2000, Frank is working as a personal assistant to Jackson and is in his early 20s. We talked about Frank in the Chandler allegations episode because he hung out at Neverland with Jordan Chandler, and they're the same age. So during the Arvizos' visit to Neverland, Frank is also with Jackson in the Arvizos that night, and here's what he wrote about it. Then came the night when Gavin and his brother Star pleaded with Michael to allow them to sleep with him. Can we sleep in your room tonight? Can we sleep in your bed tonight? The boys begged. My mother said it's okay if it's okay with you, Gavin added. Michael, who always had a hard time saying no to kids, replied, sure, no problem. But then he came to me. She's pushing her kids onto me, he said, visibly concerned. He had a strange, uncomfortable feeling about it. Frank, they can't stay. I went to the kids and said, Michael has to sleep, I'm sorry, you can't stay in his room. Gavin and Starr kept begging, 
I kept saying no, and then Janet, Gavin's mom, said to Michael, they really want to stay with you. It's okay with me. Michael relented. He didn't want to let the kids down. His heart got in the way, but he was fully aware of the risk. He said to me, Frank, if they're staying in my room, you're staying with me. I don't trust this mother. She's f***ed up. I was totally against it, but I said, all right, we do what we have to do. Having me there as a witness would safeguard Michael against any shady ideas that the Arvizos might have been harboring. Or so we were both naive enough to think. Cassio's account is corroborated by Gavin himself in the documentary Living with Michael Jackson that's filmed two years later. As confirmed by Frank and the Arvizo boys, Jackson's children ages three and two are also with them that night. And they sleep on the big bed with the Arvizos while Jackson and Frank sleep on the floor. There are never any allegations of molestation that night. There's a few takeaways from Frank's story for me. First is another example of Jackson's conflict avoidance. He doesn't want them to stay, but he can't tell them directly. Also, it's another example of what many friends and family say about Jackson. He offers his bed to guests, which is what he means by sharing his bed, and then he sleeps on the floor. And I want to repeat and make it clear that the Arvizos will never claim that Jackson molested Gavin that night. After their first visit, the Arvizos go back to visit Neverland on their own. But most of the time, Jackson isn't there. And when he is on the premises, according to Gavin, Jackson actively avoids Gavin and his family. In his later testimony, Gavin says he doesn't know what happened after that first visit to Neverland in August 2000. But Michael Jackson stops talking to him. Gavin later describes at trial how he expected more from Jackson. He didn't do as much as I felt, as my 11-year-old mind felt he should. Gavin will testify that he was upset that Jackson changed his phone numbers and became unavailable to them. Gavin says he wanted to continue the friendship after his cancer treatments, but that Jackson cut off the friendship. He confirms that he felt like Jackson had abandoned his family, and that other celebrities had done more for him. In Gavin's testimony, I see a similarity to Evan Chandler. Evan said in his recorded conversation that he expected Jackson to do more for him. And Evan also complained that he was cut off from Jackson for no reason he could understand. After Jackson cuts off the friendship around September of 2000, the Arvizo family starts sending flattering letters and cards to Jackson to try to reconnect with him. These letters will later be presented in court to show their eagerness to reconnect with Jackson. Gavin says he started calling him daddy because his own dad had left and addresses Jackson that way in his letters. Even though Jackson personally distances himself from the Arvizos, he still does things to help them. In October 2000, Jackson gives the family a van as a gift. He also allows Gavin to use Neverland for a blood drive, and all his employees donate blood. Later that same year in 2000, a local L.A. paper, the Mid-Valley News, runs an article about the Arvizo family. Editor Connie Keenan will detail what happens in her 2005 court testimony. Keenan explains how Janet Arvizo calls the paper and asks them to run a story about Gavin's illness and to solicit money for his treatment. Despite this unusual request, Keenan agrees to it, and the newspaper raises about $1,000 for the Arvizo family. Janet then asks her to run the story for a second time because they did not raise enough money from the first article. Kanan becomes suspicious when Janet claims that one chemotherapy injection cost more than $12,000. A couple months later, Kenan finds out that she and her readers have been duped because she discovers that Gavin's health insurance provider is Kaiser Permanente and all his medical bills are fully covered. So we have a newspaper story that ran to help the Arvizo family raise money, specifically for Gavin's medical treatment, only to find out that his medical bills were fully covered and that Janet used this money for personal, non-medical purposes. You'll see this type of lying for financial gain repeatedly in the Arvizo family. On September 24, 2001, over a year after their first Neverland visit, the Arvizo family reaches a $150,000 out-of-court settlement with the JCPenney department store. Gavin's father, David Arvizo, gives an interview in 2004 to Jackson's trial investigator to relate his account about this JCPenney incident. David and Janet were married at the time of the incident, but are divorced by the time of this interview. Janet Arvizo describes some of the events in the story differently, which you'll hear later. But the basic dates and events are uncontested. The JCPenney incident occurred in late 1998, 
two years before they meet Michael Jackson. David Arvizo says his wife Janet was applying for a job at Oshman's Sporting Goods Store. While she went there to fill out paperwork, David Arvizo and his two sons, Gavin and Starr, went to a nearby JCPenney store. While shopping, Gavin grabbed some clothes and ran out of the store without paying for them. David says he and Starr ran after Gavin, but before they reached their car, they were surrounded by JCPenney's security guards. Janet Arvizo then arrived on the scene and there was some kind of scuffle. Janet and David were arrested and taken to jail, charged with burglary, assault and battery, and petty theft. But they were released later that day and JCPenney eventually dropped the charges. David says once they were home, Janet told the boys to write out their version of what happened. When they were done, she took their papers and changed their stories. She gave her modified version back to the kids. And David says she made them study it on a daily basis. This changing of their stories and then practicing the revised versions will be corroborated by testimony from a paralegal, working for Janet's own attorney, who you'll hear from at trial. David says this memorization practice continued until nine months later in July 1999, when Janet files a civil lawsuit against J.C. Penney for battery, false imprisonment, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. The photographs taken by police of the Arvizos on the day of the JCPenney incident didn't show any bruising or sign of injury, and Janet Arvizo made no complaints of injuries and denied needing any medical care. Despite the initial photos showing no bruising, one week after her arrest, Janet brought in photos to the police of her with bruises. In her own testimony at Jackson's trial, Janet will admit that she lied in the JCPenney case about how she got those bruises. Once she received the settlement money in 2001, she quickly filed for divorce from David. And during that divorce battle, she changed her story about the bruises, now claiming that they were not caused by the JCPenney guards, but by her husband. When Janet first files her lawsuit against JCPenney nine months after the parking lot incident, there are no sexual assault charges. Her only claims are that she was beat up by the guards. One year later, however, on June 29, 2000, Shortly after Gavin has been diagnosed with cancer, Janet amends her complaint, and now sexual assault allegations are added. David Arvizo said that Janet never worked a day at the sporting goods store, claiming that she was unable to work due to the injuries from the J.C. Penney altercation. This loss of earnings claim became part of the lawsuit. David also states that Janet exploited Gavin's illness using it with the newly added sexual assault charges to put J.C. Penney under pressure to settle. Eventually, the case is settled a year later, in September 2001, with J.C. Penney paying the family $152,000. This J.C. Penney incident will play a crucial role in the defense's case at Jackson's trial to demonstrate how Janet involves her children in her grifting schemes. By the Arvizos' own accounts, there is no direct contact with Michael Jackson after August 2000 when they first visit him at Neverland. The Arvizo family does visit the ranch without him about six or seven times over the next two years, and they receive the van and a laptop as gifts. During this time, they continue to write letters to Jackson, praising him for what he did to support Gavin in trying to reestablish a direct connection with him. In the summer and fall of 2002, British journalist Martin Bashir works on filming a documentary with Michael Jackson. Prior to filming the documentary, Bashir explains to Jackson that in the film, he wants to show the public how the singer helps children with serious illnesses. Jackson thinks Bashir will promote his idea of National Children's Day. And this helps him make the decision to go with Bashir, rather than other journalists he was considering. Bashir remarks in the film that he spent eight months observing every aspect of Michael Jackson's life and acknowledges that Jackson agreed that nothing was off-limits. The way Jackson opened himself up to Bashir without a serious vetting process is a consistent theme in Jackson's life. This documentary is the most public and clear example of how Jackson's gullibility made him vulnerable to people who were pretending to help him, but actually only acting in their own self-interest. Bashir tells Jackson that he wants to feature a child that he's helped, so Jackson gives him two names to consider. The first is burn victim David Rothenberg, who later in life described how Michael Jackson gave him emotional support throughout his life. The other name Jackson offers to Bashir, and the one Bashir decides to go with, is Gavin Arvizo, 
who is 13 at the time, versus Rothenberg, who is in his 20s. Rothenberg, however, is also present on the set of Bashir's documentary. In September 2002, Bashir films an interview with Jackson, Gavin, and his two siblings. In the scene that will cause great controversy when the documentary is released, Jackson is sitting next to Gavin and holding hands with him. Bashir prompts Gavin to talk about where he sleeps when he visits Neverland, and Gavin explains how he and his brother begged Jackson to stay in his room. Jackson and Gavin both explain that Jackson slept on the floor, and Gavin and Starr slept on the bed. Bashir doesn't inform his audience that Jackson's kids were also sleeping on the bed with the Arvisa boys, who were 9 and 10 at the time, or that Jackson's assistant Frank Cassio was also sleeping on the floor, in the room with everyone else. In the documentary, Gavin quotes Jackson as saying, If you love me, you'll sleep on the bed. This is the quote that the media will run with. In context of the entire conversation, it's clear that Jackson's intent in saying, if you love me, you'll sleep on the bed, is that he always gives his bed to company, and then he sleeps on the floor, which is exactly what Jackson explains in the documentary. Gavin and Jackson had been arguing over who would sleep on the floor, and Jackson insisted that company should always take the bed. I explained in the Chandler episodes that those who knew Jackson say how sleeping on the floor was no big deal to him. He actually liked it. And they say how Jackson always prioritized his guests' needs and wishes over his own. Longtime friend and assistant Frank Cassio in his book says the following. What Michael didn't explain was that his suite at Neverland had a family room downstairs and a bedroom upstairs. Michael didn't explain that people hung out there and sometimes stayed over. He didn't explain that he always offered guests his bed while he slept in the family room. Given that all parties that were present that night agree that Jackson and Cassio were on the floor and the kids were on the bed, and there were never charges of molestation prior to this interview, it's disturbing to see how Jackson's statement was taken out of context to push a narrative that he had a sexual interest in boys. Jackson's attorney says that Jackson trusted that Bashir had no hidden agenda in how he presented Jackson's relationship with Gavin, and was naive in letting Bashir manipulate this scene to fit his own narrative. Even though Janet Arvizo and her husband were also at Neverland on that visit described in the documentary, and she was eagerly supporting her boy's wish to stay in Jackson's suite, Bashir only presents the kids in his film. Aphrodite Jones is a journalist and true crime author who covered the Michael Jackson trial in 2005 for Fox News. Like the majority of the press covering the trial, Jones initially presumed Jackson was guilty and reported on the trial with this bias. But she changed her mind after all the evidence was presented at trial. She describes in her book how the media pushed its own profitable guilty narrative against Jackson, who she came to believe was innocent and a vulnerable target. Her book, Conspiracy, is a detailed account of the testimony, her research, and her observations of the 2005 trial. Jones notes in an interview on Investigation Discovery that it was Martin Bashir's idea to have Gavin lay his head on Michael's shoulder and hold Michael's hand during the filming. Gavin himself says in his 2005 testimony that Bashir's portrayal of Jackson in the documentary was false. Jones was also told by Jackson's attorney that after the shoot, Jackson expressed discomfort at how it was filmed and didn't understand why Gavin's head was on his shoulder, or why they were holding hands, and that he felt trapped once the cameras were rolling, and didn't want to look like he didn't care about Gavin. After shooting the scene for Bashir, the Arvizo children stay at the ranch for one night, but without Jackson around. Jackson left after the segment was filmed, and he was again unavailable to Gavin. Here's Gavin being asked about it during his 2005 testimony. At that point, could you reach Michael Jackson by telephone if you wanted to? No. After the Martin Bashir thing, he didn't give me any phone numbers. The Arvizos won't connect with Jackson again until after the Bashir documentary airs. Four months after filming the Arvizos interview, the Bashir documentary Living with Michael Jackson airs in the UK and the US in early February 2003. The media goes into a frenzy over the comments... If you love me, you'll sleep in the bed. Without ever explaining what Jackson means, and without explaining that they never actually slept in the same bed, and that Jackson was in a room with his own kids, Gavin, Starr, and Frank Cassio. 
No one reports the fact that Gavin only had one Neverland visit that he was actually with Jackson. But the media takes the bed quote and the image of Gavin with his head on Jackson's shoulder and runs with it. Immediately, the 1993 Chandler allegations are rehashed in articles and talk shows. And on the same day Bashir's documentary is released, someone illegally leaks Jordan Chandler's 1993 declaration to the media. The press also tries to hunt down the Arvizo family, as the family will later describe it. Right after the documentary release, the Chandler's former attorney, Gloria Allred, makes numerous television appearances, calling for a child welfare investigation. This call to action is based only on this misleading scene with Gavin and Jackson. Attorney Allred will later demand that Jackson's children be removed from his custody. Santa Barbara DA Tom Snedden is quick to launch an investigation into Jackson's relationship with Gavin Arvizo when media psychiatrist Carol Lieberman files a complaint on February 11th with the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department. Again, this complaint was based solely on the scene from the documentary. Lieberman asks for Jackson to be investigated and also demands that his children be removed from his custody. Snedden publicly stresses the fact that the case cannot go forward without a cooperative victim. Journalist Victor Gutierrez also becomes active right after the documentary release. Gutierrez does interviews in his home country, Chile, promoting himself and his book, Michael Jackson Was My Lover. According to comedian Chris Tucker's testimony, Gavin calls him on the phone to complain about how the media is hounding his family, and he says they want to get away from California and find Michael Jackson. Tucker offers to take the Arvizo family to Miami, where Jackson is staying and says the whole Arvizo family was excited to see Jackson. Tucker says in his testimony that he's suspicious of the mother, Janet Arvizo, and when they arrive at the hotel in Miami where Jackson is staying, Janet and her kids keep calling Tucker brother and Jackson father, which makes him uneasy. Their effusiveness is just too much in his eyes. Gavin's brother, Star, and his mother, Janet, will later claim to police that on the flight back to L.A., they witnessed Jackson lick the head of a sleeping Gavin although there are others on this flight sitting across from and around Jackson and Gavin. Only Janet and Starr witness this licking incident. Janet never confronts Jackson about it or mentions it to anyone else, including Starr or Gavin or her own boyfriend, and she continues to praise Jackson and describe him as a father figure to her children for months afterward. The first time she or Star speak of the incident is when the family starts to make child molestation allegations later in 2003. After the Arvizos return to L.A. from Miami on February 7th, they stay at Neverland off and on until March 12th. Jackson's defense will later argue that Jackson hosted the Arvizos at Neverland in these five weeks because the Arvizos were complaining about being hunted down by the media and wanted protection. Jackson's PR team was also trying to get the Arvizos to do an interview to make it clear that there was nothing inappropriate between Jackson and Gavin. Jackson's defense will argue that Janet was delaying this interview because she was trying to get money for it. On the other side, the Arvizos will claim that Jackson and his associates were keeping the family captive during their five-week stay at Neverland held against their will in order to force them, by threatening their lives, to do this rebuttal interview. Gavin and Starr will also later claim that Jackson gave them alcohol and molested Gavin during this five-week visit. There are never any claims that any abuse happened before the release of the Bashir documentary. We'll discuss the details of these abuse allegations later. But because prosecutor Tom Snedden will eventually charge Jackson with conspiracy to imprison the Arvizos, what I want to cover now is the evidence regarding this captivity claim. Were the Arvizos held captive and frightened for their lives during their stay? It will be proven at trial that during these five weeks of alleged captivity, the Arvizos go shopping, they stay overnight at Janet's boyfriend's house, they visit a lawyer, they talk to Child Protective Services, and Janet Arvizo appears in court regarding a dispute with her ex-husband. And during all of these outings, they never report to anyone that they need help or that they were being held against their will. We're going to do a rundown of some of the trial evidence that reveals just what the Arvizos were doing during this time they said they were held captive at Neverland. Four days after the Arvizos arrive at Neverland, receipts show that on February 11th, Janet Arvizo goes to a salon for a leg wax, which she herself confirms. 
On February 12th, the day after the leg wax, the Arvizo family leaves Neverland and stays at Janet's boyfriend's house for five days through February 16th. On February 16th, private investigator Bradley Miller, as part of his work for Jackson's lawyer Mark Garagos, conducts and tape records an interview with Janet Arvizo in her boyfriend's home. Reporter Aphrodite Jones heard the recording of this interview at Jackson's trial. She describes the family as chipper and upbeat, as they speak during the interview with Bradley Miller. On the recording, Janet describes Michael as a family man and someone who would protect her kids. She says each of her kids considers Jackson like a father. The kids say Michael had given them safety and love. Gavin, in his interview, insists that Michael never acted inappropriately. And they all say Michael has been nothing but good and nice to them. Janet also speaks on the recording about the media pounding down the doors after the documentary and says she'd received calls from around the world. She's annoyed that stories are being twisted by the media after the documentary and says how the media is offering her cars and money. Later at trial, Janet Arvizo will testify that the nice things she said about Jackson in this interview were genuine. This recorded interview is nine days into their alleged captivity. Jackson associate Vinny Amen later tells journalist Roger Friedman that when he brings the Arvizos to their own apartment on February 16th, a business card of D.A. Tom Snedden had been slipped under the door. Journalist Ed Bradley visits Neverland Ranch and later talks to Larry King about his conversation with the Arvizo family during this time of their supposed imprisonment. We sat in the kitchen having coffee and donuts and sodas, and Janet Arvizo and the kids said they were willing to go on television to say what a great person Michael Jackson was. Back in the summer and fall of 2002, while Bashir was filming Jackson for his documentary, Jackson had his own cameraman openly filming right alongside Bashir. This independent filming turns out to be a wise move, as the footage shows material that Bashir left out of his program and unveils his manipulations of Jackson. So as a rebuttal to the release of the Bashir documentary, Jackson sells Fox Broadcasting Channel this outtake footage, plus additional interviews with Jackson's family and friends. One of the interviews conducted by Jackson's crew is with Janet, Davelin, Gavin, and Star Arvizo, filmed on February 20th right in the middle of when the Arvizos say they were imprisoned at Neverland. In this interview, they talk about how much care Jackson extended to the family in their time of need. Here's a short clip from that interview with the Arvizos. My first impression of Michael isn't exactly an unanswered prayer to my children and me. And all he wanted to do was good happiness. That's all he cared about. He told me, listen, I... I need you to get better. You are going to get better. Mm-hmm. He told me, I need you to eat up all the little cancer cells just like Pac-Man. Go around eating like Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. I never forgot that. The interview ends up not being included with the outtake footage they sell to Fox. I highly recommend watching all of the excerpts from this interview, which we link to on our website. The prosecution finds this unused footage when they search this videographer's home later in the year. This interview will become important as it contradicts the Arvizo's timeline of abuse and captivity, and it inconveniently conveys the eagerness of the Arvizos to talk about how wonderful Jackson has been to their family. This interview appears to be one of the reasons the prosecution will change the dates of the allegations. Fox releases their rebuttal documentary on February 20, 2003, entitled Michael Jackson, Take Two, The Footage You Were Never Meant to See. After the Arvizos interview with Jackson's film crew, the Department of Children and Family Services interviewed the Arvizos at the home of Major Jay Jackson, Janet Arvizos' boyfriend's home. Jay Jackson is not related to Michael Jackson. The social workers interviewed Janet Arvizo and her children because a teacher from Gavin's school filed a complaint over the innuendo in the Bashir documentary that Gavin had slept in Jackson's bed. The Arvizos all say nothing but positive things about Jackson to the social workers. The social services report from this visit, which can be found on the Smoking Gun website, states the following. The investigation by the Sensitive Case Unit concluded the allegations of sexual abuse to be unfounded, both by the LAPD, Worshire Division, and the department. The children's mother stated that she believed the media had taken everything out of context. Mother stated that the entertainer was like a father to her children and a part of her family. She said Jackson was never alone with her children. Gavin denied that he ever slept in the same bed as the entertainer. 
He and his brother expressed a fondness for the entertainer and enjoyed visiting Neverland, where they would ride rides, play video games, and watch movies. The oldest sibling, Davelin, 16, is also interviewed, and she states she never saw anything sexually inappropriate between her brothers and the entertainer. On February 21st, one day after the interviews, Gina Darviso meets with civil attorney William Dickerman and meets again with him four days later at the Laugh Factory. According to Janet, she contacts Dickerman because she wants him to stop the media from using her children's photos. In these private meetings with a lawyer, with no Jackson associates around, she never mentions anything about being held captive by Jackson. Between February 25th and March 2nd, 2003, the Arvizo family stays at a hotel in Calabasas, Los Angeles, with Frank Cassio and Vinnie Amin, Jackson's assistants. Jackson himself is not present. During this trip, as receipts show, the Arvizos go shopping several times on their own, and Gavin and Starr have an orthodontist appointment. The orthodontist and all other parties present at these outings are interviewed and say the Arvizos never mention that they are being kept against their will at Neverland or need help. On March 2nd, the Arvizos return to Neverland. Trial testimony later reveals that 30 other guests were at Neverland at various times during the period of the Arvizos' alleged captivity. From March 5th through March 9th, Jackson and his children are away from Neverland at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. On March 11th, Janet Arvizo appears in court regarding a child support issue with her ex-husband David Arvizo. There are no Jackson associates present. She is accompanied by another one of her lawyers, Michael Manning. She doesn't report to either the lawyer or the court that they were kidnapped or held against their will at Neverland. March 12th is the Arvizo's last day at Neverland, which Janet will later describe as their final escape. However, according to Janet's own testimony, this supposed escape consisted of calling Frank Cassio to bring the kids over because her father was sick. All parties agree that the Arvizo kids are taken from Neverland without incident. The Arvizo's only explanation given at trial for not reaching out for help is Janet Arvizo's claim that all her calls were monitored and she was afraid. You'll hear when we get to the trial why the jury did not believe Janet's claims of fear. So the captivity claim doesn't add up. With all the outings, trips, and opportunities to reach out for help, and with all the glowing comments made about Jackson to everyone during their stay, even without any Jackson associates around. The Arvizo's last day at Neverland is March 12th. Almost two weeks later on March 24th, Janet Arvizo formally hires William Dickerman as her civil attorney. Dickerman sends letters over the next month to Jackson's attorney, Mark Garagos, regarding the return of furniture, clothes, and other items that were put in a storage locker after the Arvizos moved out of their L.A. apartment in March. The two attorneys exchange numerous letters about the issue of where and how the Arvizos will take possession of their belongings and who will pay the outstanding bill of the storage locker. This mundane correspondence between lawyers may not seem that significant. But if Jackson were guilty of molesting Gavin just a few weeks prior, I have a hard time believing he would be bickering over payment for their storage locker. According to defense evidence, Janet was seeking distribution rights for their interview with Jackson's film crew. And when she didn't get it, she started seeing the civil attorney to feel out other avenues for making money out of the Bashir scandal. Janet and her boyfriend made it clear to Jackson that they wanted money, but their overtures were rebuffed. Jackson has been portrayed by his accusers and detractors as devious, cunning, and quick to pay hush money. If he was guilty, Jackson should have been ready to offer a big payout to Janet and made sure she was happy especially after what happened with the Chandlers. His actions, once again, not to pay off a family when the opportunity presented itself, is suggestive of Jackson's innocence. Another month later, on April 16, 2003, Santa Barbara Children's Services Division closes the case, stating no further action required. Janet Arvizo's lawyer, William Dickerman, later testifies that in May 2003, he enters into a fee-sharing agreement with civil attorney Larry Feldman regarding the Arvizos. Larry Feldman is the same civil attorney who negotiated the settlement for the Chandlers. Bringing Larry Feldman into the mix is suspicious because of how adamant they are that there was no talk about abuse at this time. Janet already had civil attorney William Dickerman who was perfectly capable of handling their alleged legal issues of photos in the media and storage locker payments. The Arvizos talking to Feldman before there were any sex abuse claims reminds me of the security guards in the Chandler case, 
who had no stories of abuse for years, until they met with Tom Snedden and found out what perks they could get in exchange for their stories. One month later, in June 2003, Larry Feldman sends the Arvizos to Dr. Stanley Katz, the same psychologist who Feldman brought in to assess Jordan Chandler's allegations of abuse. It is during his sessions with Dr. Katz that Gavin first makes claims of molestation by Jackson. Larry Feldman then brings in Janet Arvizo and the family to discuss the allegations and possible legal actions. Feldman reports Gavin's allegations to the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office on June 13th, and the police investigation begins. Gavin and Star Arvizo tell police that during their five-week stay at the ranch, Jackson gave them alcohol and showed them pornography. Star claims that Jackson molested Gavin when he was intoxicated on several occasions. Star will contradict himself over the course of his different interviews, which we'll cover at trial. Star initially claimed to police that he was also molested by Jackson, but these allegations disappeared, and we never heard about them again. Gavin initially says he was molested upon first arriving at Neverland, but that changes to being molested in the last few days of their five-week stay. Gavin will give the number of times Jackson molested him as either seven, five, or less than five in various police interviews. However, by trial, Gavin says there are two and only two incidents of molestation. Gavin says the molestation consisted of Jackson masturbating him. We'll cover more about the allegations at trial. According to Larry Feldman's testimony in 2005, sometime in August, September, or October of 2003. He writes a letter to the Arvizos, saying he is not going to represent them. He's not asked why he stops representing them. On November fifteenth, two thousand three, as Diane Diamond reports in her book *Be Careful Who You Love*, she gets the call about an upcoming raid on Neverland. Diamond and Snedden helped each other in the Chandler case, and they continue this relationship with the new Arvizo allegations. Diamond says how she was alerted even a few months earlier that a new Jackson investigation was percolating. There are no other reporters who say they received this kind of early information about the case. On November 18, 2003, about 70 sheriffs conduct an unannounced raid on Neverland Ranch. The raid lasts from 8:30 a.m. until 11 p.m. There are helicopters present at the raid, and reporters are immediately on the scene. The spectacle of 70 raiding officers, all their vehicles, the helicopters, and the tipped-off reporters who are immediately on the scene makes it apparent that Snedden and the sheriff's department are aiming for the highest impact in the press and the public. It appears that everyone in the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department wants to take part in the Jackson raid. Jackson's lawyer Tom Mezzaro will later comment that he'd never heard of such a large number of sheriffs in a raid before, not even for a serial killer. And he believes it was an obvious publicity stunt. Jackson was in another state at the time, and even if he was at home, no one thought he would pose a threat to authorities. During the Neverland raid, Snedden and his officers breached the terms of their own search warrant when they entered Jackson's private office and seized business records. At the same time as the Neverland raid, sheriffs also raided the offices of Jackson's videographer, Amid Moslihi. And of Bradley Miller, Jackson's investigator, who interviewed the Arvizos. One of the items Snedden confiscates from the videographer's office is the rebuttal interview with the Arvizos praising Jackson back on February 20th during their stay at Neverland. The raid on Bradley Miller's office will become contentious the following year, as there is evidence that Snedden knew Bradley Miller was working for Jackson's attorney, and therefore his office contents should be protected by attorney-client privilege. An arrest warrant is issued for Michael Jackson based on Gavin Arvizo's allegations. Jackson is in Las Vegas at the time, filming for a TV special scheduled to air a week later on CBS. But at the news of his arrest, Jackson returns to California and turns himself in. He's later released after he posts a three million dollar bail bond. The search and arrest warrants on Jackson are approved based on the prosecution statement of probable cause issued the day before, on November 17th, by the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department. In my research into the Arvizo case, I found many lapses in due process by the prosecution and police, but this statement of probable cause struck me as one of their most conspicuous acts of injustice. According to the legal encyclopedia Nola. Here's what should be the criteria for establishing probable cause to search or arrest someone. 
To establish probable cause, police officers must be able to point to objective circumstances leading them to believe that a suspect committed a crime. But this statement of probable cause, which forms the basis to arrest Jackson, contains only the wild and improbable stories of the Arvizos. The police make misleading statements in this document, such as saying that Jackson had an ongoing three-year relationship with Gavin and made endless phone calls to him over this time period. We know from Gavin's testimony, among others, that Jackson cut off the friendship after the Arvizos' one visit to Neverland, so police got this so-called corroborative evidence wrong. In their later testimony, the police detectives will say they didn't want to tip off anyone, so they didn't talk to any other witnesses until after the arrest and raids. So Michael Jackson has his private home raided, and he's arrested in front of the world irreparably affecting his mental health, his family life, and his livelihood. Based on the uncorroborated stories of this family, who has a history of lying for money. And once Jackson is arrested, the police are now completely invested in proving their high-profile case. The day after the raids, on November 19th, District Attorney Tom Snedden and Santa Barbara Sheriff Jim Anderson give a press conference to discuss Jackson's arrest. Tom Snedden is later criticized by some in the press and in legal circles for his joking manner. And although Snedden himself denies it, there are many interviews with those who knew Snedden, saying he has a vendetta against Jackson. Here's what an Associated Press article reported, a day after Snedden's press conference. Snedden, a prosecutor of 34 years and DA for 21 of those, appeared to be grandstanding at the news conference and seemed to take delight in announcing a warrant for Jackson's arrest. Lori Levinson, a professor at Loyola University Law School, said, It was baffling, perplexing, and it didn't have a particularly serious tone. She continues, A good defense lawyer is going to say Snedden was too personally invested and you can't trust the investigation. And here's excerpts from an article by Corey Moss entitled, Why is the DA in the Michael Jackson case smiling? District Attorney Tom Snedden's cheerful smile at Wednesday's press conference said it all. This case is personal. The apparent vendetta most likely stems from two events. Snedden was the prosecutor on the child molestation case against Jackson 10 years ago, only to find himself without a victim willing to testify when Jackson reached a multi-million dollar settlement with the alleged victim's family. Secondly, Jackson later attacked the district attorney in his music. Jackson's 1995 double album, History, includes a song called DS, featuring the chorus, Dom Sheldon is a cold man, according to official lyrics. His pronunciation of the title character, however, sounds much closer to Tom Snedden is a cold man. Snedden was elected district attorney in 1982 and has been re-elected ever since, prompting the local newspaper to call him arguably the single most powerful person in all of Santa Barbara County. And there are numerous other articles noting Snedden's gleeful and inappropriate tone, given his office and the serious charges. If you watch the entire press conference, which you can find links to on our website, for the majority of it, Snedden and Anderson are deflecting press questions with no-comment-type answers. However, in addition to the joking around by Snedden, there were other comments by him that struck me as unprofessional and unfair. Here's a question directed to both Snedden and Sheriff Anderson. Are you aware of other civil cases that have been handled outside of the media since 1993 that were kept quiet? Anderson says, Not to my knowledge. Then Snedden says, Well, I am. The reporter asks, How many? Then Snedden responds, Ask Diane. She knows everything about Michael Jackson. And then we hear laughter in the press corps. Although there was only one other settlement by Michael Jackson to the Francias in 1994, Snedden misleads the press by being ambiguous about the number and refers to Diane Diamond, formerly of hard copy, which is uniformly categorized in the press as a tabloid news show. Snedden and Diamond help each other out because of their mutual interest in tarnishing Jackson for their own ends. Snedden also makes this misleading statement in the press conference. There were some previous contacts by folks in Child Protective Services involving some other things that came out. Don't assume I'm talking about the same family. I'm just telling you there was Child Protective Services involved in other allegations involving Mr. Jackson in Los Angeles. 
This is a misleading and inflammatory statement, as it was the same family. It was the Arvizos that were contacted by Child Protective Services. You've already heard about their interviews with the family and their conclusions that the allegations were unfounded. By saying other allegations, Snedden is insinuating the possibility of another accuser, which is completely untrue. He's talking about the Arvizos. Snedden definitely knows how to fan the flames of these allegations in the media. At the end of the press conference, a reporter asks, "What do you say to parents who let their children go to Neverland Ranch on sleepovers?" Sheriff Anderson answers, "My advice: don't do it." And we hear laughter again in the press corps. Then Snedden says, "None of our kids were there." And there's more laughter from the reporters. It's important to remember that no real investigation has commenced yet. They just had the raid the day before, and they admittedly haven't yet interviewed anyone besides the family. To be so disparaging to Jackson's character is unprofessional at any point in this investigation, but especially at the beginning, when you have little to no evidence to support the stories of the family. Immediately following the press conference, media outlets scrambled to adjust their programming to cover the Michael Jackson scandal, including Dateline's interview with Raymond Chandler, Jordan Chandler's uncle. Daily Variety states that the Jackson story was a godsend for the media, especially considering the November rating sweeps. They quote LA News director Jeff Wald: "Viewers can't seem to get enough." The media is undoubtedly invested in giving their audiences reason to believe in Michael Jackson's guilt. On November twentieth, despite just the day before stating that he would do no interviews or TV shows, Snedden appears on Court TV with Diane Diamond. In this interview, he refers to Jackson as Wacko Jacko, for which he later apologizes. After his announcement, TV host Nancy Grace reports that the DA's office was receiving many, many dozens of phone calls. Diane Diamond says in her book "Be Careful Who You Love" that there were literally hundreds of leads phoned in, but in the end, most, if not all, of the complaints went nowhere. In fact, none of the calls went anywhere, revealing the abundance of people willing to make false claims for money, fame, or because of mental health issues. One person who answers the sheriff's call to come forward as a victim is 18-year-old Daniel Capon. Capon contacts the Santa Barbara police, claiming he had been sexually molested by Jackson as a child, and former Jordan Chandler lawyer Gloria Allred is representing him. Capon says he has repressed memories of the molestation and therefore only recently recalled the abuse. It is Dr. Carol Lieberman who helped bring forth Capon's repressed memories. Lieberman is the psychologist who filed a complaint against Jackson immediately after the Bashir documentary was released nine months earlier. The police interview Capon but do not find him credible. Capon describes horrendously sadistic acts and repeatedly changes his story. When police contact his father, they learn that Daniel Capon had never even met Michael Jackson. Because of his mother's mental illness, Daniel hadn't seen her since he was three years old. She hired a private detective to track down her son at college, and she convinced him of the wild stories about Michael Jackson. Diane Diamond says she talked to Tom Snedden about Capon's claims, and he told her it was pure voodoo. She writes that Capon was impressionable and lonely, and he allowed himself to be brainwashed into believing in unstable parents' incredible stories. After the police closed their investigation in May 2004, Capon sells his story to the tabloid News of the World. It's the parental influence on Daniel Capon, who was about 18 at the time, that reminds me of Evan Chandler pressuring his son Jordan into saying Jackson molested him. Although the allegations weren't bizarre in the Chandler case, it's the manipulation of their own children by a parent suffering from mental illness that's the pattern—a pattern you'll see repeated in the current case with the Arvizos. I include details in the Capon case not only to highlight how mental illness can underlie celebrity obsessions and lawsuits, like we saw in Evan Chandler. But also to note how quickly attorney Gloria Allred and psychologist Carol Lieberman jumped on this case, taking no time to verify Capon's story before going public with it. And even though the case is baseless, when the investigation was publicized by police, it had the effect of adding fuel to the fire of suspicion against Jackson. On November twenty-fourth, two thousand three, four days after Snedden's press conference. Diane Diamond claims on a Larry King Live panel that police are searching for love letters that Jackson wrote to Gavin. 
Larry King asks, Does anyone here know of the existence of these letters? And Diane Diamond says, I absolutely know of their existence. Diane, have you read them? No, I've not read them, but I absolutely know that it was tops on the list of the DA and Sheriff's Department, things to look for inside Neverland. Listen, Larry, these are letters that are written in Michael Jackson's hand. No, I've not read them, but they went after them because they're said to be so sensational and so salacious in nature that this could be a key to the prosecution. Despite Diamond saying she absolutely knew of their existence, there never were love letters found or brought into evidence at trial, and never any letters spoken about by the prosecution. Similar to her reaction to the non-existent sex tape from the 1995 Victor Gutierrez story, Diamond continues to assert rumor as fact, and because her credibility is buoyed by her closeness to Snedden, these rumors spread and antagonize the public against Jackson. This public bias against Jackson helps the prosecution and enhances Diamond's visibility, as her niche is negative Michael Jackson stories. On December 18, 2003, the prosecution files its initial felony complaint. Jackson is charged with seven counts of lewd and lascivious conduct with a child and two counts of administering an intoxicating agent. The complaint asserts that the molestation started as soon as the Arvizos arrived at Neverland on February 7th and lasted until March 10th. There is no captivity charge in this complaint. On December 23rd, Santa Barbara Superior Court Judge Rodney Melville is selected to preside over the Michael Jackson criminal case. A few weeks later, on January 6, 2004, Jackson's lawyer Mark Garagos says on NBC that Jackson has an alibi for the dates put forward on the felony complaint. Garagos says, The timeline is ridiculous. Michael has a concrete ironclad alibi for the dates they are saying this abuse took place. Some criticized Garagos' decision to reveal the alibis publicly because of the potential for the prosecution to change the dates of the alleged abuse which is indeed what happens, as we'll get to shortly. On January 15th, former Chandler lawyer Gloria Allred again asked the Department of Child and Family Services to remove Jackson's children from his care. Consequently, social workers go to Jackson's rented house in Beverly Hills to meet with Jackson's kids and their nanny. On January 16th, Michael Jackson pleads not guilty at his arraignment. The judge places a gag order on both sides not to speak in public about the case. On January 30th and 31st, court documents show that police searches led to seizure of computers, documents, photos, videos, and a DVD of a party at Jackson's Neverland Ranch. It's reported that over 100 search warrants were executed in this case. On March 11th, CBS reports that investigators seized about 100 pages of phone records. On March 19, 2004, based on their recent investigation, the Department of Children and Family Services concludes there is no basis to remove Jackson's children from his care. D.A. Tom Snedden chooses to bring the felony charges against Jackson through a grand jury proceeding. And on April 30, 2004, Jackson is indicted on 10 counts. Four counts of child molestation, four counts of administering an intoxicating agent, one count of attempted child molestation, and one count of conspiracy to commit child abduction, false imprisonment, and extortion. There are several changes in the charges since the initial felony complaint in December, but the most drastic change is the brand new conspiracy charge. The prosecution is now alleging that Jackson held the Arvizos against their will at Neverland. Also changed are the dates of abuse. Instead of the original claim that the abuse started immediately after arriving back from Miami on February 7th, the starting date for the molestation is now February 20th which is the same day the Arvizos were interviewed by the Department of Family Services. What happened between December and March is Mark Garrigo's statement that Jackson had an alibi for each of the dates of abuse. There was also the problem of how Gavin and Starr could be so effusively praising Jackson in the rebuttal video in the child welfare interviews of February 20th, if he'd been molested since February 7th. So the new starting date for the abuse is February 20th, after these interviews. Some in the press found it beyond plausible that Jackson would have started to molest Gavin while the media firestorm was at its height following the Bashir documentary. All eyes were on him, and he and his team were working furiously on PR management. Garagos in interviews says how they made sure the Arvizos were never alone with Jackson. The Jackson team says they offered Neverland to the Arvizos because the family could not escape being hounded by the media. From the Jackson perspective, Neverland provided the Arvizos refuge from the media 
and this would hopefully dissuade them from the temptation of tabloid money in making false allegations. After the grand jury indictments against Jackson, a May 4th article by Steve Chalkins in the L.A. Times quotes several legal experts about the brand new conspiracy charges. Prosecutors love conspiracy charges. They're not hard to prove. You just have to prove two or more people agreed to commit an illegal act, even if the act never was carried out. Robert Landier, a criminal defense attorney in Santa Barbara, saw the conspiracy charge as reflecting an even greater aggressiveness on the part of the prosecutors. This is really the shot across the bow in this case, he said. They've just declared war on Jackson. The conspiracy charge claims that between February 1st and March 31st, 2003, Jackson conspired with five associates to abduct Gavin Arvizo and to falsely imprison the Arvizo family. But Snedden shrewdly does not indict any of them. His only target is Michael Jackson. This will deny the defense these key witnesses. Their testimony would help the defense because their accounts directly refute the Arvizo allegations of captivity. However, these five, for their own protection, are legally discouraged from testifying for the defense, as it could incriminate themselves as targets of the prosecution. According to the prosecution's story, the reason the Arvizos were imprisoned was to force the family to participate in the rebuttal video. However, Gavin himself testifies that on February 20th, when they shot the rebuttal video, and when they were interviewed by the social workers at their mother's boyfriend's home. They still considered Jackson to be a good person, and they had no problem praising him. Janet Arvizo also testifies to the same. Here's what she was asked on the stand in 2005. Were you willing to say something at the time that was positive about Michael Jackson? I was. At that time, did you have anything to say about Michael Jackson that was negative? No. This makes the conspiracy allegation dubious. Why would Jackson need to abduct and falsely imprison a family to do an interview when they were freely willing to participate in it and willing to say positive things about him anyway? And why wouldn't the Arvizos ask for help on one of their many outings, where there weren't any Jackson associates around, such as meetings with their own attorney or in the safety of the homes of family and friends? While prosecutors may like conspiracy charges because they're normally not hard to win, with the Arvizos, these prosecutors have their work cut out for them, trying to make this captivity narrative believable. After finding out about his grand jury indictment, Jackson replaces his lawyers with Tom Mesereau on April 26, 2004. ABC News analyst Dana Cole comments about Jackson's new lead attorney. Once Tom came on board, there was no more Hollywood slickness. He just decided to dig in and do the work, and I think that brought a lot of integrity and credibility to this case. Mesereau has a reputation as a brilliant and fair litigator, and I was impressed by how he handled himself in the Michael Jackson case. Unlike a lot of lawyers in high-profile cases, Mesereau avoids the cameras as much as possible. He says he worked hard to clean out Jackson's legal team. He saw some of the publicity stunts supported by Jackson's prior legal team and avoided that type of action, which he says only served the lawyer's self-interest of being seen on TV, but not in Jackson's best interest. Here's Mesereau. I chose to tone down everything. I opposed courtroom cameras and supported the trial judge's gag order and sealing of salacious pleadings. I removed provocative individuals from the defense, either immediately or gradually. Certain people I did not trust were frozen out of key meetings or denied access to important information. These actions by Mesereau to remove untrustworthy and self-interested associates of Jackson to me is indicative of his innocence. Michael's brother Randy also took part in this cleaning out. If Michael Jackson is guilty, it would be extremely risky to fire all these people who know what's going on. Ex-employees with a grudge from being fired is not a smart plan if you're guilty and trying to hide a secret, as you'll see in the case of Bob Jones at trial. Bob Jones definitely held a grudge and definitely wasn't paid off when he got fired. If Jackson is guilty, you should see his legal team banding together with all of his associates that were enabling or ignoring the abuse to present a united front to protect Jackson, not firing people. But if Jackson is innocent, as Mesereau firmly believed, it makes sense to fire untrustworthy and self-interested employees 
who could distract from the mission to prove Jackson's innocence. On May 20, 2004, a warrant is issued for Jackson's telephone records from across the country and are sought from 17 telephone companies. There are also warrants for Jackson's records from Bank of America, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. In a pretrial hearing in August, Snedden testifies that he personally took part in the surveillance and search of Bradley Miller's office and says it was because he happened to be in Los Angeles and wanted to avoid using additional county personnel. He also admits to having met with Janet Arvizo alone in an empty parking lot to give her papers that would qualify her for a state victims fund. The investigation work by D.A. Tom Snedden is work that is supposed to be carried out by police detectives. The defense notes that Snedden's own investigators conceded that they'd never worked a case when a district attorney conducted his own investigation. Sex crimes prosecutor Linda Fairstein commented to ABC News about Snedden's unusual actions. It's way too personal. It's way out of line. If he does any substantive parts of an investigation, he may become a witness in the case. And here's trial attorney Mercedes Colwyn on the Abrams report. You can't be so personally involved that you're gathering evidence. He's talking to witnesses. He has no one present in the room. Extraordinarily problematic. In this year-long build-up to the trial, I saw many examples of prosecutorial excesses. And I'll refer you to our website for more details, including Snedden's intimidating letters to keep people silent, a possible violation of the gag order, Snedden's grand jury witness bullying, and preventing jurors from questioning witnesses and the possible illegal raid on Bradley Miller's office. On September 15th, police searched the house of Evie Tavashi, Michael's assistant since 1991. On September 28th, prosecutors visit 1993 accuser Jordan Chandler in New York to try to get him to testify against Jackson in the upcoming trial. He declines, and he tells them that he will legally fight any attempt to get him to testify. Also in September 2004... Dateline NBC airs a show entitled Inside the Michael Jackson Case. The credits reveal that Victor Gutierrez is a consulting producer for the program. This is the same Gutierrez who was found in court to have made false claims of seeing a sex tape of Michael Jackson. And the same Gutierrez who was using Jackson to promote the normalization of pedophilia in his book. Gutierrez being accepted as a consulting producer on the show is another example of how credibility doesn't matter when it comes to the Michael Jackson allegations. On October 9th, Jackson's defense subpoenas Ray Chandler to bring his alleged evidence to court. After releasing his book a month earlier, Ray Chandler has been making the media rounds claiming to have evidence that Jackson abused Jordan Chandler. The defense serves him with a subpoena to bring his evidence forward in court. Ray Chandler will successfully fight the subpoena, claiming he is a journalist protected by the S.H.I.E.L.D. law. It's important to note that it's Jackson's defense that actually wants Ray Chandler on the stand, not the prosecution. On November 4, 2004, Judge Rodney Melville rejects a motion by the defense to have Snedden removed from the case. Here's his comments. I find no disabling conflict. I also find there will be controls in this trial while the jury is present. If Snedden appears excessively zealous during the trial, I will see that he is taken care of. Judge Melville's tendency to rule in favor of the prosecution is noted by Tom Mesereau in later interviews. Mesereau explains that while he and his defense team were outsiders to Santa Barbara, Judge Melville, along with Tom Snedden and the other prosecutors, were all close-knit local colleagues with a long history and camaraderie. And Mesereau says this association may be a factor in Melville's decisions that favor the prosecution. The Santa Barbara News Press obtained the psychiatrist evaluation of the Arvizo family from the JCPenney case. They report that UCLA psychiatrist John Hockman interviewed the family two years after the incident. During Dr. Hockman's evaluation, the family complains that they still have headaches and nightmares from what happened in the parking lot. The children told him that they're afraid the bad people from J.C. Penney will come to their house and hurt them. Dr. Hockman notes that Janet Arvizo claims memory loss about her life before the J.C. Penney incident. She says she doesn't remember where her son took dancing lessons. Janet says that prior to the mall incident, she was living an ideal and extraordinarily virtuous life. Hockman states that the mother appears delusional and frequently buries her head in her hands during the interview. He notes, 
She was far more upset talking about the mall episode than about her son's bout with cancer. Her general demeanor alternated between a blunted state and tearful hysteria. Gavin indicated the J.C. Penney parking lot incident was more frightening than the year he battled cancer, and his brother said it was worse. The psychiatrist notes his belief that the interviews with Gavin and his brother were rehearsed, which is consistent with the father's story that the kids had been rehearsing their mother's revised stories of what happened. There will be other evidence presented at trial about the kids rehearsing their stories, the kids admitting lying in their lawsuit, and evidence that the parents were detained without the use of force. On December 4, 2004, police again raid Neverland Ranch. Also on December 4, the defense files a motion to permit into evidence the interviews of passport employees who reported strange behavior by Janet Arvizo on February 25, 2003 which is during the period of alleged captivity. These passport agents said Janet demanded special treatment, like cutting in line because she knew Michael Jackson, and she claimed to be his personal assistant. The agents also said Janet Arvizo and her kids expressed their desire to travel outside the U.S., countering their claim to police of being forced to prepare for this trip to Brazil. And this example of entitlement and special treatment demanded by Janet Arvizo will sound very familiar once you hear the many accounts at trial of her son's sense of entitlement and his demands of special treatment. On January 13, 2005, grand jury testimony is leaked to the press. Jackson lawyer Tom Mesereau criticizes the leak, explaining how in grand jury proceedings, prosecution witnesses do not have to undergo cross-examination and says such a leak can prejudice the whole case against Jackson. Judge Melville approves the request by Michael Jackson to release a video response because of the breach of justice by the grand jury leak. This is his statement. In the last few weeks, a large amount of ugly, malicious information has been released to the media about me. Apparently, this information was leaked through transcripts in a grand jury proceeding where neither my lawyers nor I have appeared. The information is disgusting and false. Years ago, I allowed a family to visit and spend some time at Neverland. Neverland is my home. I allowed this family into my home because they told me their son was ill with cancer and needed help. These events have caused a nightmare for my family, my children, and me. I never intend to place myself in so vulnerable a position ever again. I love my community and I have great faith in our justice system. Please keep an open mind and let me have my day in court. I deserve a fair trial like every other American citizen. I will be acquitted and vindicated when the truth is told. Thank you. Jackson's video statement is where we'll end part one of the Arvizo allegations. In the next episode, we'll begin the criminal trial of Michael Jackson, starting with the opening arguments from both sides, followed by the testimony from the Arvizo family. We'd like to thank the Michael Jackson allegations and the Vindicating Michael websites, among many others that have collected source material for the Arvizo case, in addition to their thoughtful analysis of this evidence. You can find all our sources for this episode on our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com, and you can connect with us either through our website or on Twitter at Case4Innocence. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast.